Thank you all for being here, and thank you for supporting the Trust. For those who don't know me, I'm Steve Clark, and along with the team, I have the honour and pleasure to organise these series of talks that you're obviously at one this evening. Now, a little bit of safety. We're not expecting a fire alarm tonight, so if it does go off, it's the real thing, okay? Not a factor. Just to make sure, exit's over here, far corner, and over there, and at that time, the bar will be closed, I'm sure. <laughs> Um, those budding historians amongst you, especially who uh, know a bit about American history, will know that 78 years ago today, uh, the Golden Gate Bridge was opened to the public. Well, this afternoon, along with Captain Mike Bannister, our chief Concorde pilot, and our guests, uh, we flew from New York to San Francisco and under the Golden Gate Bridge and the Bay Bridge. And we're all here as a result of it. Um, so I can justify say at dinner parties that I've now flown with the greatest pilot in the world. Will you please welcome Captain Eric Winkle Brown, RN? And there was something happened then, but quite a lot happened in 1944, but in the spring, up at the Federal Reconnaissance Unit at Mednam, they flew the Spitfires at very high altitude, came back with photos for interpretation at Mednam. And there was a lady there, a WAF, called Constance Babington Smith, who had the most extraordinary eyesight. And she was looking at some photos that had been taken of Peenemunde in Germany, which was a grass airfield. And there were scars on the grass. And she noticed these, noticed that they were unusual, and her interpretation was it must be either a rocket or jet efflux. She was right on both scores. Anyway, time went on, and um, towards the end of 1944, Winston Churchill, our then Prime Minister, was getting very concerned because from June 1944 onwards we had been subjected to an avalanche of German techno technological weaponry. Firstly, in the late spring our fighter pilots and bomber pilots reported they had seen rocket aircraft. 
flying in Germany. Then we had reports of very fast jet aircraft. As if this wasn't enough, round about June of 44, we started getting bombarded with flying bombs or V1s, that's everyone knowing. Now these were a very, very effective weapon. They launched, the Germans launched some 5,000 of these against us, all successful launches. They normally flew over at about 1,000, 2,000 feet, at about 400, steady 400 miles an hour. We didn't have a single fighter in this country at that time that could fly at 400 miles an hour at 2,000 feet. We had plenty that could fly at 400 miles an hour at 25,000 feet, but not at 2,000. So, how were we going to defend ourselves? Firstly, we set up a ring of anti-aircraft guns, very successful, I may say, but not 100% successful. So, we are going to have to, once we had to deal with the flying bombs and got through the ACAC ring, it was up to the fighters. We had four fighters that were possible runners to deal with them. There was the Spit Mark 14, the Tempest 5, the Mustang 3, and let me think what the fourth one was now. There was another one. Maybe one of you will think of it for me. Sorry? No, a typhoon wouldn't make it. <laughs> oh, it was the meteor. Of course, the meteor just come into view. It played a very little part, the meteor, actually, but it just come into view. Anyway, with this problem, how were we going to catch up with it? So it was decided we would take these four aircraft, and in the main, the Tempest Five, which was the most promising of them, and boost their engines by using 150 octane fuel instead of 100 octane. This had its risks. You could only use full power with 150 octane for about three minutes. You could push it at a limit to five, but very risky. And after each such flight, the engine had to be virtually, well, not overhauled, but given a very careful check. Also, it was interesting that um, you had to be careful how you dealt with this weapon. If you, to overtake it, you would obviously need a little bit of height to advantage to dive down at it. But to fire on it from a stern was risky because you would almost certainly blow up the bomb and you would collect 
most of the debris from the bombs. And uh, you could, might say you could duck your head down the terrace, but not too good at the meteor if it's all going to go down the spout. Um, but there we go. And um, that was one thing. And then we then played around with the method of going along formating on it and getting your wing under one of the, their wings and uh, creating a pressure pad uh, between the two wings. You didn't actually touch wing to wing, but the, the bombs going along, when you come along, get under it, just ease up on it, uh, nobody's going to argue with you, nobody in, in the aircraft, and um, just tip it over. Once you do that, you topple the gyros, and away it goes. <coughs> of course, when it goes, it explodes the bomb. So the pilot had to be very careful he didn't do this over a built-up area. So it had certain limitations. Well, just when we were beginning to get this thing under control, suddenly, another weapon rained down this, the V2, which was a guided supersonic missile, and carried quite a heavy warhead. Both of them had a warhead of about 2,000 pounds. And <coughs> trouble with the V2 is you had no warning of its arrival. First thing you knew was the explosion. After that, was followed by a supersonic bang. But um, very unnerving weapon to have to deal with. There were about 1,200 of these successfully launched against Britain. And uh, as I say, Churchill was getting very disturbed at all these goings on. So, he came to the Royal Aircraft Establishment at Farnborough, which was our country's main aviation research establishment, and had a word with the director and suggested that we set, he, or we, not he, we set up a mission to his requirements. What he wanted was a mission to be named the Farron mission, because the director of the RAE Farnborough was Mr. W. S. Farron. So he was given the name for the mission, and we were to have a load of boffins to go along, scientists and pilots, and I was appointed as chief pilot and chief interpreter because I was fluent in German, having been a school teacher in Germany before the war, for a short time. Anyway, we were all pretty well set up, ready to go. I would spent a couple of months teaching our team very basic German. We can't teach them a lot in two months, but um, <coughs> Off we went 
or while we were ready to go, I should say, by certainly February 1945. Now Churchill said, I want three priorities. First and foremost, find the German supersonic <coughs> wind tunnels and, if necessary, try and bring them back to Britain. Or if we can't, find out how they work so that we can copy them. Why this excitement about supersonic wind tunnels? For very good reasons. First and foremost, not a single allied nation had a supersonic wind tunnel. That's the, when I say allied, ourselves, America, France, Russia. The only supersonic wind tunnels in the world at that time, there were a number located, quite a number located in Germany and one in Italy. Why in Italy? Because the Italians took the matter of the Schneider Trophy races for seaplanes very seriously and wanted to get the best they could. And very effective they were too. So, that was his first priority. Second priority was find the advanced jet and rocket aircraft and test them, if necessary, in Germany, but preferably bring them back to Britain, to the REE, and test them here. Third priority, find the top scientists and designers, aircraft designers, and interrogate them. So there we were. With these three things in mind, we were waiting for some action to take place. The only action that was likely to happen was that we'd be alerted by the Second Army who were battling their way through Germany that something, they had got something that would whet our interest. First call we got from the Second Army was on the 13th of March. I didn't think March or April. No, it was March. 13th of March, 1941. And it said, the unit it called it said, we have overrun the German airfield at Fassberg, which is reasonably near Hanover. And they said, on that airfield, we found in an aircraft which we think is an advanced German jet. It seems to be in good shape, and uh, we asked them to describe it, and from what they said, we realized it was the main prize we were looking for. The Messerschmitt 262. 
Two aircraft had been flown into Fassburg before the British Army arrived by two German pilots who were fleeing from the Russians and just dumped the aircraft and fled. So I went over there and I couldn't believe my eyes when I saw these aircraft, not only for the, the main ones we wanted, they appeared to be totally undamaged or unvandalized. So, the brigadier in charge of the airfield, who had captured the airfield, British brigadier, uh, I spoke to him and said, um, look, I'll have to leave these things because we don't know anything about them. We'll have, we just can't jump in and fly them. We've got to find out something. So, I'm having any prisoners of war whom I could use to look after them. And he said, yes. He said, we've got some aircraft ground crew, but they've nothing to do with jets, of course. I said, I realize that. All I want them to do is just cover the cockpit canopy, look after the, see there's no corrosion effects aircraft for a few weeks. And uh, so I had a chat with these lads and uh, left them to do that. And the brigadier said to me, I've been listening to you talking to these boys. He said, and you talk far better German than my interpreter. He said, I wonder if you would come and give me a hand on a special operation for two days. I said, I can't do that and give you a day, but I've got to be back to Farnborough. I have a job to do there. So he said, okay, I'll make it a day. And I said, what are we going to do? And he said, we're going to liberate the concentration camp at Bergen-Belsen. So I said, right, why do you need me? He said, because I what, from a medical point of view, he was a medical, he was the chief medical officer of the British Army, Brigadier Glyn Hughes. He said, from a medical point of view, before all the officials get their hands on these people, I want to interrogate my way the camp commandant and the female camp commandant in Belson. So, off we set. Now he said, turn up at eight o'clock tomorrow morning, or seven thirty, or whatever, and um, we'll set off. He said, the camp's not very far away. When I got to the group waiting for me, um, we were in land rovers, not in armored cars as I expected to be. I said to him, look, if we're going to take over, why are we in these sort of vehicles? He said, don't worry. i tell you what's happened. About a month ago, the Germans realized there were 20,000 cases of typhus in Belsen. Now, typhus is called by, caused by lice. 
It's not infectious, it's caused by lice. And uh, he said, if we, the Germans said, if we don't contain this, we'll have a plague worse than the war in our hands. So they had a white flag truce between the Second Army and the German Army, and it was agreed that the German Army would ring fence with bayonet troops, the whole of Belsen, Belsen and Bergen, Belsen, they were really two camps together, and uh, ring the whole perimeter to prevent anybody, inmates or guards, getting out. Contain the lot. He used Hungarian troops for this, and uh, when we arrived, the entire staff of the camp was assembled at the gate, and there will be about, um, probably about 60 of that order. So we went through without any problem. The brigadier said to me, now look here, you've got the morning to look around while I get things sorted out, and uh, then we're interpreting in the afternoon, or interrogating. And um, so off we set, and uh, what I saw is unbelievable. First thing that strikes you is, there were piles of human bodies. Most of them would be the height of the ceiling here. Uh, there were bits about 10 feet deep, about 30 feet long. And they just piled bodies in until they were up to about that height. At my end of the camp where I was, almost all the victims were female. They're all dead, of course, and um, still being laid reverently into these pits. They were bulldozed in, so they were in the most grotesque positions all over the place. It really was a horrid sight. But what was to come, because close by there were Barrack blocks, really, but they were single blocks, but 30 feet long, 16 feet wide. And in them they had, on each side of them, there were three tier bunks, built open slatted bunks, three of them on each side. And a corridor down the middle, ending up at the end with one loop. Now, these had originally been made to contain 60 people. We found 250, roughly, in each hut. So each bed or bunk was occupied not by one person, but up to seven at a time, lying all over each other, all died, 
some actually dead, and there was a falling thing, and this was the whole worst feature of Belsen to me. And I can, to this day, it affects me. The stench of this place was just unbelievable. These people were lying there, totally incapable of movement, top bunk messing through the open slats on the next bunk, then turning, messing through the open slats on the next bunk. It was unbelievable. And um, as I say, instead of 60 in a hut, there were about 250 in each of these two huts there. I went back, saw the brigadier when I'd finished looking around. Um, there was also a chance to talk to some people. So I, there were the bodies in the pits, there were the huts, but there were some people walking around in striped garb. And I stopped and talked to some of these in German, and um, they would stop, look, never looked you in the face, looked at the ground, just stood there. When you finished, they stepped aside and walked on. They were zombies. They had not, nothing had registered. <coughs> I would say to them, look, you have nothing more to worry about. It's all over. You're free. Didn't register any emotion or reaction at all. They were, in effect, dead or dying. Anyway, we got down to the interrogation in the afternoon. And uh, the brigadier sat on one side of a table, and we brought, first we brought in the camp commandant called Joseph Crown. Burly, thick set fellow who had been a senior guard at Auschwitz, but then being promoted to commandant at Belsen. And uh, Amelia said, ask him if he had his time over again, would he do this? And Kramer said, yes, I would. And we said, right, uh, said, ask him why. So it all went on like this. This was the trend of the thing. And uh, he said, he didn't make excuses and say I was only obeying Hitler's orders. He said, look, if you knew what my childhood was like, in abject poverty, starving, all because of the terms imposed on Germany by the Treaty of Versailles, you might understand why, like many other Germans, I realized the pride of our nation had been taken away by this treaty. Said, when you do that to a country, they will do anything to get that pride back. 
So, a man appeared offering us this hope, saying he could give Germany back its pride. We were going to follow him come hell or high water. That's what he did. He said, that's what I did. He said, I still believe in him, although he's gone. And um, I have no regrets for what I've done, and I would do it all over again. So, gives us food for thought, too. Then dealt with the lady, comrade, who is the worst human being I have ever encountered. She was called Elma Grazer, farmer's daughter, about 24, 25 years old. For that time, with the funny hairstyles in the center, not a bad looking woman. And uh, she had been the chief camp commandant to Auschwitz. She was addicted to cruelty against her own sex. The things she perpetrated against the other women in Auschwitz are just a horror story. She had no regrets at all, no conscience. Cruelty was her trade. So I sat her down and I said to the brigadier, I said, ask for the same thing as last summer. So I said to her, if you had your time over again, would you do this? refused to answer. So keep on asking her. After about five times, she suddenly leapt to her feet, gave the Heiler Hitler salute, and sat down. That's all we got out of her. She was so full of guilt that there is just nothing she would do to convince anybody that she was worth preserving, if you want to put it that way. So, that was it all over, and they were all, the top hierarchy at Belsen were all sentenced to death, and um, many of the lesser guards given full prison sentences. I was so determined to see a McGregor executed that I thought she, I must not allow her to escape the system. That I went to see what was going on at her execution. The British Army had employed our national hangman, Albert Pierpoint, to do the honors. And he was a weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> he limited himself for some reason known only to him to nine bodies a day, nine hangings a day. Uh, anyway, I went to him and said, uh, when you come to Elmer Grazer, make sure you 
bad hands behind her back because I don't want to drain the Hitler salute before she goes. And he said, don't worry, sir, I, I tie all the hands behind the backs. I tell you, I've never met anybody with such job satisfaction. <laughs> That's why I loved it. Anyway, that was the end of that, and uh, I had to get back to Farnborough and um, get ready to test this thing. Um, I'll come back to this because um, there was obviously a gap while I went back to Farnborough. Now, the next call we had from the Second Army was to go to Oh, they had overrun an airfield on the west coast of Schleswig-Holstein called Husum, H-U-S-U-M. And they said they had found 40 rocket fighters there. All of them grounded because of lack of fuel. But they were, all appeared to be intact. So I shot off there with a team, and uh, indeed we did find an outfit called JG400, which had about 40 Messerschmitt 163s. There we are. Now this is an extraordinary outfit. It's full of innovatory ideas. Let me show you some. The main thing about it is it is semi-tailless. Has a vertical tail, but no horizontal tail. It's incorporated in the airlines here, which are called elevons. It's got swept back wings, which to us were pretty new, even in the war. And um, we had no swept wing aircraft other than experimental in Britain at all during the war years. And um, had for landing a skid here and the skid was on top of a trolley which was only used for takeoff. When you lift it off, you go up to about 30 feet, you jettisoned the trolley, then retracted the skid. Um, the main thing about it, of course, was it had a rocket engine in the body here. A liquid fuel rocket engine with two highly volatile fuels. The main fuel was concentrated hydrogen peroxide. There is little less explosive than that. And the catalyst to explode it was hydrogen hydrate in methanol. So the hydrogen hydrate is dipped onto the 
hydrogen peroxide causing an explosion in a very fortified tube here and the explosion of course produced thrust to touch the aircraft off. And um, previously, although a liquid fuel rocket had been flown, it had to be unrestrained. In other words, when you lit the touch paper, so to speak, it burned right through. There's nothing you could do about it. It's out of your control. But with this engine, they had invented it to be throttleable in three phases. Either idle, <coughs> cruise, or full power. So you had some flexibility. In other words, you could shut off the engine. Use, let's say, cruise, then when you wanted maybe a break to assess the combat situation, um, you could stop the engine, but you could not relight it, but then you had to have a stopwatch vital to your flight gear, and that must have a two minutes break before you try to relight, otherwise you'd have an explosion. The cockpit, pilot, in fact, was in a tin coffin because this is a 600 mile an hour airplane. The top speed for jettisoning in the canopy is 250 miles an hour. So your situation is pretty desperate. It has Two 30 millimeter cannon in the nose, so it got quite a punch. Was this a frighteningly successful airplane? Certainly not. In my opinion, it was a tool of desperation. When I flew it, I'll give you briefly an idea of what it was like. You take off, fantastic acceleration with this rocket, and um, thunder across the airfield, and literally, by the time you reach the boundary, you're doing 450 miles an hour, at about 50 feet. You then pull up into a 45 degree climb, and um, you find that because of the steep attitude, you can't see the horizon. So you have to do this climb on instruments. And there was a very effective, very effective set of instruments in the aircraft, particularly the artificial horizon. It was traveling so fast for somebody that hadn't flown one before that it really was ahead of your thinking. I meant to, intended to 
doing my first flight and climbing to 30,000 feet. I overshot the 2,000 feet before I got my wits about me in time to get the thing throttled back. And even then, you can't sit back and say, thank God I reached that height, because if you don't throttle back again, you'll be into high Mach number trouble. Because um, with the power in this rocket, which was about 3,700 pounds of thrust, um, you moved up to about Mach 0.82 very rapidly. And if you let it get to Mach 0.84, you were in deadly trouble. Because at 8.4, without any warning, it tucked under. Change of trim was huge. It tucked right under, and there was no way you could recover until you made a hole in the ground. <laughs> so, it was a, a very durable airplane from that point. But the worst feature of it was landing. I knew before I flew it that the Germans had had 42 landing accidents based on the fact that um, the fuel had not been all used because it kept, I thought it had the ability to be switched off and relit. But we're doing that you allowed fuel to be residual in the tanks. Whereas if you burned it straight through, all fuel would be gone. So if you did this business of stopping starting, which you would in operational flight, um, the problem was if you, I'm told you had a jettison system, small amounts would get tucked into the fuel system and if you had as much as much as that in the system on touchdown on this very non-resilient skin the aircraft would explode and blow the pilot and the machines as smithereens. The fuel was also very, very corrosive. I, before I flew it, I had a word with the inventor of the engine, and uh, I noticed that when I sat in the cockpit of this, the seat had two very nicely curved arms to rest on. And I thought, oh, that's very nice, giving the pilot a bit of comfort till I found out these were two fuel tanks. <laughs> and uh, I wasn't going into combat, but I was interested in what would happen if a bullet went through one of these. And um, I was told that they had done experiments with a cadaver to find out that very thing. And if 
they had been penetrated and the fuel sputtered up across onto the pilot, despite the fact he was wearing a non-organic flying suit, he would be melted in nine minutes. Totally melted. All you'd see would be a little blob on the seat. <laughs> Not very encouraging. So that was um, the soul. At the end of the day, I say, in my opinion, a tool of desperation. Not very effective. It's operational record. In its entire operational history, it shot down 16 aircraft of various kinds and lost 10. Very poor operational record here. But um, it's of all the aircraft we found in Germany, this was the one that fascinated world aviation because of all its innovatory features. We built one, as you know, based on this, the de Havilland DH-108, which was a total disaster. We built three fatal accidents. And um, so you had to know what you were doing with a thing like this. I only did one flight in Germany. They were short of fuel, and um, by this time they, they were short of pirates too. But um, the British authorities decided they would not let any hydrogen peroxide be imported into the UK. That was the end of flying with that, with that fuel. I won't say I wasn't relieved, but um, nevertheless, we, we learned almost as much by turning it up for the Spit 9 to 25,000 feet. And from that, fight, from that height, we could dive it to Mach 1.82. So, we learned as much as we wanted to learn. Right, now I'm going to show you one or two other aircraft we came across with some very interesting features on them. Now just go beyond all these. Now stop, no, back one. Now this is of course the one which more than anything else we wanted to have. Note the fuselage. Sharp, tight, shaped fuselage. You may ask, why did Churchill want supersonic wind tunnels? That's one of the reasons. You don't learn anything about how to design a high-speed aircraft unless you have a supersonic wind tunnel. And um, this thing went far faster than anything we had at all. It has swept wings. 
It has huge axial flow engines. It has four thirty millimeter cannons, a huge bunch. It is of, in my opinion, the most formidable aircraft of World War II. And um, when I tested it, to give you an idea of what the performance was like. The top Allied fighter in World War II was the Spitfire Mark 14, with a top speed of 446 miles an hour. When I tested this at Farnborough, at a top speed of 568 miles an hour. 125 miles an hour, faster than the Allies' fastest fighter. We won in the same league. And if this aircraft, if they had Germans ran out of pilots, they ran out of fuel, thank God. Because otherwise, we'd have been faced with these. They could easily, in my opinion, have prolonged the war another two years if they'd had the logistic support. They, it was a tremendous aircraft. The engines were quite different from the type we were promoting. As you know, Frank Whittle was the developer rather than the inventor of the jet engine. But um, he knew all about, I, well, I worked very closely with him, and I said to him, Frank, you know all about axial flow and centrifugal flow in jets. Why have you gone centrifugal? Because this engine is incredibly powerful. He said, because we are in the early stages of jet engine development, and I want to give the RAF an engine that is simple and reliable. Simple it certainly is. There are far more moving parts on an axial flow than on a centrifugal. And secondly, um, the Frank's first engine had a time between an overhaul of 100 hours. Check over it and then recycle it. This engine had a scrap life of 25 hours. So there was a problem in even keeping of producing the number of aircraft you required when the engines only rushed that time. I'll show you some other ones. Can we move on? That is another of the jets. This was a photo reconnaissance bomber jet. Non-swept wings, same engines, but um, very fast, could outfly any fighter we had at that time. 
not quite as fast as a 262, but a beautiful aspect of fast too. That's another vertical jets. This came rather late at the end of the war to ever be in operational service. But the interesting thing about it is um, it had, you had these two jet engines, two jet aircraft, and the rocket fighter, none of which had an ejection seat. But this one had. Now the Germans were way ahead of Martin Baker with ejection seats. They did their first ejection in anger from a jet in 1942, successfully. But eventually, uh, they went to, to ejection seats on many of their aircraft. Unlike Martin Baker, they didn't use cordite. To eject, they used con uh, compressed air. Very smooth ride indeed with compressed air. I'll show you another example. <coughs> now off again. And again. Oh, well. There's another one that had an ejection seat. Well, this one was a complicated system. You had three buttons down on the right. And when you press number one, there was a very loud bang, and this propeller blew off. <laughs> when you press number two, there was another loud bang, and this fin and, and rudder went. So the mincing machine was disposed of. And uh, after that, you had to arm the seat, and then Jesus in the hood uh, to get out before you pull the blind. They had the same blind system as us. But they had thought a bit further than we had. They thought, right, if a pilot wants to eject, surely he must be out of control. If he's out of control, the aircraft is probably certainly under heavy G. And when you're under G, your limbs, if you're under 4G, your limbs weigh four times the normal weight. For example, I had trouble in a de Havilland 108 when I was being subjected steadily to 4G on the raw intermittently. But, um, because of that, I wanted to eject, but I couldn't get my hands up to the blind because the, my arms weighed so much. But the Germans thought, right, we'll put a switch down by the pilot's left thigh. And uh, his arms are dragged down anyway. He can fire the switch, and out he goes. Without a face blind, of course, but you get out. Oh, well, there's another very interesting airplane I'd like you to see. This is it. The Heinkel 219 night fighter. 
It had some remarkable features. And um, on the top here, you see a bump there. We've removed a thing called Schweiger Musik in German. But up there were two 30 millimeter cannons, inclined 60 degrees upward and forward. Now, at the beginning of World War II, and for the whole of the war, the British system of night fighting was to go up, and that night in Britain would be difficult for you to imagine, but every night, there were hundreds and hundreds of airplanes all over the sky. Which were ours and which were theirs? Knife fighter had to find out, of course, before he attacked. The only way of doing that was to get underneath, silhouette him against the sky, identify him, then slide back up to his slipstream, and then attack him. For which time mostly twigs were there and gone. Germans, with this system, all they had to do, fly underneath, identify if it was enemy, blast off. And this particular night fighter, on its first sortie, very first sortie, down six lakhs in one night using this system. And it plagued the whole of Bomber Command through the whole of World War II. Because the Germans fitted it again, not only to this, but to the Messerschmitt 110 and the JU-88. And it was a powerful, powerful weapon. 30 millimeter cannon is a huge punch. Right, the other thing about this airplane was it was the first production aircraft in the world to be fitted with ejection seats. It had two crew, pilots sitting forward, radar operator facing off. Each had an ejection seat. Either could initiate the fire. You hoped whoever did it, he told his chum what he's doing. <laughs> Otherwise, it would come as a bit of a surprise. But, irrespective of who initiated it, the sequence would always be the same. And the pilot would go out. Sorry, the radar operator went first. The radar operator went out this away. Three tenths of a second later, the pilot went out that way. Hopefully, it went, never the train shall meet. <laughs> but in, um, in its operational career, this aircraft did 12 double ejections, all 100% success. The system was as good as that. So it really was quite something. Right, well that gives you an idea of what some of some the aircraft were. They had a huge number of top-notch airplanes. I mean, the Focke-Wulf 190 fighter 
top-notch fighter, the January 8th top-notch bomber. And um, apart from that, uh, we were pretty well balanced um, as regards aircraft. I always think of the top three British aircraft in the war as the Spitfire, the Mosquito, and the Lancaster. The top three Germans were the Focke-Wolf 190, the Messerschmitt 262, and the JU-88. So we were fairly well balanced that way. Now what about the final thing we had to do? Interrogate their pilots and aircraft designers. This was quite fascinating. Um, I think we found that the technological standard of the German Boffin was exceptionally high because they had set up far more technical colleges than we had at the beginning of the war. But the most remarkable man I interrogated amongst them was Werner von Braun and um, the rocket scientist. Now he was not captured, he gave himself up. When he did so, he gave himself up to a young American lieutenant. And uh, he said to this young man, aren't you the lucky ones to get me? Because I'm going to take you to the moon. <laughs> he meant it. He was the most self-confident human being I have ever met. This man was utter genius. Uh, everything he touched, he could master it at about a tenth of the rate a normal human beings can. Quite remarkable man. Of all the German aircraft designers, I think the outstanding one was um, the Focke-Wolf designer, uh, Kurt Tank. The reason he was outstanding, he was not only the chief designer of Focke-Wolf, he was the assistant chief test pilot. So he had, <coughs> I mean, designed the aircraft, he then flew his own aircraft, and so on and so forth. He's absolutely brilliant. When I interrogated him, that's a quite, quite a misnomer because I barely got a word in edgeways. <laughs> he interrogated me because he wanted to know I'd flown a lot of Focke Wolf aircraft. He wanted to know everything about everyone. It just went on forever. But there we are, with our first class guy. And um, he wanted to come and stay on and design in Britain. But we took this very stiff anti-Nazi stance against uh, people like him. And the final ones I'll tell you about was interrogating two war criminals, other than Farmer and Irma Grace. Um, 
These were Himmler and Goering. And uh, <coughs> Himmler, at the end of the war, was had fallen into disgrace with a German upper hierarchy because he had been making independent attempts to broker a peace between Britain and Germany on his own. And uh, Hitler therefore dropped him like a hot potato and um, as his successor nominated Grand Admiral Dönitz. Himmler went to Dönitz, who was uh, holed up in the Naval Academy in Schleswig-Holstein, and asked to be taken under his wing. Dönitz would have nothing to do with him, threw him out and left him on his, drifting on his own. So he was trying to hide himself from capture. But it's difficult for you to realize what Germany was like after the war, but mostly it was like walking on the moon. There was destruction everywhere. And literally thousands after thousands of people Mulling around, half of them in uniform, half of them not, trying to find their way back to their home, or if their home had gone, to relatives they had. And uh, it was utter chaos. And all we could do was establish little posts uh, in the country, and um, we would um, examine people's papers to see if they were not right. This is how we picked up Himmler. He was with another two chaps, and they were all dressed as SS sergeants. But the other two were genuine, but we detected that Himmler's papers were forged. And the guy that detected this was a private in the army. And he held Himmler and asked the next guy up in the, the next security post, a warrant officer, what he should do with him. And the warrant officer said, send him up here and I'll see, look him over. So he did that. and. Um, Himmler was disguised, but not a lot. He had an eye patch on and one or two things like that, but nothing startling. And um, the warrant officer didn't get much joy out of him, kept interrogating him, and they both got exasperated with each other. Himmler called himself Heinrich Hitzinger. And this warrant officer kept saying, uh, come on, I bet you're Heinrich Himmler. And um, finally, in desperation, Himmler said to him, yes, I'm Heinrich Himmler. 
What do you think the one doctor's reaction was? Having got this, he laughed at them and said, oh yes, and I'm Julius Caesar. <laughs> so they were getting nowhere fast. So they ran to headquarters and asked for advice. And uh, they knew that I had seen him uh, quite a few times before the war. So they sent me to identify him. And uh, it was immediately obvious when he walked in, or when I walked in, that this was him. And um, just to confirm it, I asked him two questions that only he could answer. And um, one was about his imprisonment of von Braun, top scientist in the country. He put him in jail in the, in the heat of the war for four months. And uh, I asked him the reason, and he said because he was designing rockets not for the war effort, but for his own hobby. <laughs> Perfectly true, actually. Perfectly true. But anyway, we decided it was him, and uh, we took him to the army headquarters. Now, I wasn't present when this happened, but as they got him to the headquarters, the doctor came out, army doctor, to check to see if he had a cyanide pill in his mouth. So he told them to open his mouth, see Himmler did, Doctor put two fingers in his mouth. Himmler bit on them, not to harm the doctor, but to crush the pill. And within 10 seconds, gone. So that, and then a funny thing happened. We had to tell London, of course, that we'd got this guy, we'd committed suicide. And somebody, a very clever, thinking guy in London, said, Right, now here's what to do. Get a cardboard coffin, put him in it, wait till darkness falls, get a, a, a party of four to carry the coffin out into Rosenberg Peace. There was a young captain leading the way. Tell them to zigzag all over the place. And finally, when they've had about 20 minutes or a quarter of an hour of this, to stop and bury them, then find their way back to headquarters. This way, none of them would remember where he was from. This was very clever because it prevented the possibility of an iconic Nazi tomb being left after the war. Believe you me, um, it, to this day, on Muneberg Heath, where he is buried, on a Sunday, Germans are out with their buckets and spades <laughs> digging for Himmler's bones. To this day. So it was a very astute move. And the final one I'll talk to you about is Goering. Remarkable man. Um, he had fallen out with 
Hitler, of course, and uh, that's why Dönitz was made his successor instead of Göring. But the Americans captured Göring, <coughs> and they treat prisoners of war, military ones, rather differently to us. The first thing they did was rip his insignia and medals off, and um, so that he had no sign of what his rank was at all. And called him, everybody was instructed to call him Herr Goering, Mr. Goering. <coughs> Not like Marshall, which he was, top boy in the country. But um, I was given, it's a long story as to why, but if you read my book, you'll find out why. <laughs> I was given in, uh, interrogation rights were given. And um, I surprised because I'd seen plenty of pictures of Goering, pretty fat, very fat. When I saw him, he was pretty slim. The Americans had weaned him off drugs. And um, I called him Reichsmarschall. And of course, he preened like a peacock and wandered around there. But he was an intelligent man and answered all my questions without any hesitation. <coughs> I'll merely <coughs> tell you just the one question that I asked him, you'll find it interesting. I said to him, <coughs> how do you think you fared in the Battle of Britain? You chat, RF chaps, hold your hats. Because he said it was a draw. <laughs> and um, I said to him, how do you arrive at that conclusion? This, his answers were very interesting. What he said was, if you look at all the analytical charts of the battle, you'll see that in the last fortnight of the battle, Germany started to have, have fewer casualties, both aircraft and aircrew, than Britain <coughs> in the last fortnight. So I said, oh, well, knowing that, why didn't you continue and strike while the army was hot? He said, because Hitler called all army units, or rather fighter aircraft units, back to Germany to prepare for Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of Russia. This also is perfectly true. So that was the situation. And um, it's very interesting to reflect on what might have been. If Hitler had gone off just when Goering sent the units back, who knows, the war might have taken a different course. But they were held back for almost two months by trouble in the Balkans. But when the invasion took place, the German forward units were actually in the Kremlin and were there waiting for support. They were out of weapons, food, etc. So the logistic train 
was vital to them when it was 200 miles back down the road when the snows came. So they had no option but to evacuate. It was as close as that. And with that happy thought, I'll leave you to it. <laughs> Down again. And that's that. This one was 
a reason that took a lot of finding out. When you got it up to this point, um, it would then stop. And there was nothing you could do to budge the stick. And then it would go up and over onto its back. And uh, when you are in a tail slide, the instructions I got from the boffins, and they paid off very well, was don't tamper in any way with the flying controls. Leave them alone. Lie back and think of it. <laughs> <laughs> so that was what it was. And um, so I flew it 19 times. The reason I did was we had 19 flight observers at Farnborough. None of them would fly twice. <laughs> <laughs> and your second, your second point? frequency, but they didn't have 
equipment aboard to be able to measure it. So we were very short of information. And also, there was a mystery about Jeffrey's death. The aircraft bits crashed in Egypt Bay, which is down near the mouth of the Thames. And uh, Jeffrey's body was found in the mud with a parachute attached to him, which was not opened. And um, when we examined it, there was absolutely nothing wrong with the parachute, and it behaved perfectly under test. But what the doctors found when they took Jeffrey's body away was that he had broken his neck. Now, they assumed at first it had been broken on impact. But this was not the case. They established afterwards it was broken in flight. So his neck, and he was a tall man, much taller than me, six feet one, and his neck had been thrown back and forward. And we think, in the subsequent tests I did, that the viciousness of this oscillation was such that it had um, burned his head back and, um, as I say, six feet one, he had hit it against the canopy. Now, we didn't go into these tests just blind and saying, well, let's do it again and see what happens. <laughs> we realized we must prepare ourselves for the worst. So we, um, Redesigned the aircraft, strengthened the wings, that was the main thing, and fitted an ejection seat, which Jeffrey didn't have. And one or two other things. And uh, when the oscillation occurred, it occurred lower down than with Jeffrey and at a higher Mach number, and was very vicious. It had um, Three cycles a second oscillation, which is almost a blur. And in each cycle, it subjected the aircraft to plus four and minus three G. So it was a very, very vicious um, oscillation. But I was fortunate the I had tried everything. The one thing you mustn't try and do is chase the oscillation. Otherwise, you're, all you're going to do is aggravate it. But um, I tried everything I could to calm it down unsuccessfully. And I was <coughs> sitting back, really, uh, I was thinking of England. There was nothing, nothing I could do. I couldn't get my hands up to reach the ejection seat because of the G. So I'd come to a point, if you like, of acceptance of what was going to happen. When, but I wasn't sitting still. I was moving the throttle and the stick. And something happened. To this day, I don't think it's been analyzed what, but it stopped as quickly as it started after seven seconds. So I was very fortunate. So that's the only one. <laughs> well, the main, the main one. <laughs> <laughs>
One more question, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. Any more? Uh, yes, sir. Just down here. Never, never used one. I bailed out, but never used an ejection seat. Yes. Oh, yes, yes, but um, any port in a storm. <laughs> now, I'll tell you one thing before you go. Um, talking about hairy moments, my best friend in the latter years was Neil Armstrong, the man in the moon. And, uh, he was sitting in leafing through my logbook about three years ago, and he said, you know, I think you've had more hairy moments than I have. <laughs> and I said, I doubt that. But, um, so he said, well, let me jot down ones I noticed. He jotted down 20. And um, 15 of these were underlined. And, um, Two years later, he died, so that nothing went no further until the top aviation artists in this country saw the, his list and said, I'd love to paint those. So we just published a book illustrate, well, describing those 15 very hairy incidents. And, um, there's a beautiful painting of each one in the book. It's being sold in aid of Flying Navy, the heritage flight down at York. So if you're interested later in the year, it will be at a viable price. It isn't at a viable price at the moment. <laughs> it's a hundred no, two fifty pounds a book, I think. This is purely a charity. Later on, we hope we get public share for about 30 pounds. Ladies and gentlemen, Eric Winston.
So we have here a pack which allows you to come here as often as you like. And you, you don't have to sink your supper to come here anytime you like. And you can wear a badge here which will indicate to you. put that badge in your car, this one on your jacket, so everyone will know that you're an honorary member. And you're in a very select group, isn't it, Randy? Thank you very much. Thank you. 